Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features a multidisciplinary panel of experts discussing the importance of preoperative detection of cognitive impairment and dementia in the geriatric population. The host is Dr. Zane Peters from Loyola University Medical Center, who's a clinical scholar working with the ACS Division of Research and Optimal Patient Care. His guests are Dr. Julia Berrien, an assistant professor of surgery at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Dr. Kelly Flood, a professor in the Division of Gerontology, Geriatrics, and Palliative Care, as well as the Associate Chief Quality Officer for Geriatrics and Care Transitions at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and Dr. Elizabeth Whitlock, an assistant professor in the Department of Anesthesia and Perioperative Care at the University of California, San Francisco. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. Good morning. My name is Zane Peters. I'm a general surgery resident at Loyola University Medical Center and a clinical scholar working with the American College of Surgeons Geriatric Surgery Verification Program. Today, I'm joined by a multidisciplinary panel of experts to discuss an issue of special relevance to older adult surgical population, um, namely preoperative detection of cognitive impairment and dementia. Over the last several years, a growing body of literature has demonstrated the unique vulnerabilities of this older adult surgical population in the perioperative space, which has led to several nationwide campaigns, including the IHI's What Matters to Older Adults initiative, the Geriatric Emergency Department Accreditation Program, and of course, our Geriatric Surgery Verification Program. And so today I'm joined by Dr. Julia Berrien, Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Dr. Elizabeth Whitlock, Assistant Professor of Anesthesia at the University of California, San Francisco, and Dr. Kelly Flood, Professor of Medicine in Gerontology, Geriatrics, and Palliative Care at the University of Alabama, Birmingham Department of Medicine. I'd like to start off with a few general questions about this topic, cognitive impairment and dementia in the perioperative surgical space. Um, and I'd like to start by asking uh, Dr. Flood, uh, what, what is the difference between cognitive impairment and dementia? And do we treat these things as distinct entities or um, similar entities when we're evaluating patients for surgery? Yeah, thanks so much, Zane. It's such a great question to kick us off with. So. Dementia refers to an acquired neurocognitive disorder that's characterized by a decline in at least one domain of cognition from an individual's baseline, and that decline has reached the level where it's now interfering with their everyday functioning, so their baseline functioning. The most con common cognitive domain we think of is memory, but some patients will present with declines in another domain such as language, whether it be written or verbal or executive function or problem solving or visual spatial changes or other. So we need to be aware that it's not always a change in memory that signals cognitive impairment and dementia. Now dementia has several causes, by far the most common cause is Alzheimer's disease. Now you may also hear the term mild cognitive impairment or MCI and MCI refers to a state between normal cognition and dementia where the patient has some very mild or subtle changes, but these changes are not impacting their everyday functioning. Therefore, it hasn't reached the diagnostic criteria of dementia. Um, the other important point is um, that some, but not all cases of MCI may progress to dementia. However, some patients will present with MCI or even early dementia symptoms that are potentially reversible. The most common reversible cause I find for cognitive impairment is what they're experiencing is actually a side effect from their medications, whether they're prescribed over the counter or both. Another reversible cause may be depression and severe depression can look a lot like MCI or early dementia. So part of caring for patients with cognitive impairment is to look for potentially reversible or exacerbating causes. Um, 
I'll now pass the baton to Dr. Whitlock, who uh, I know uh, has uh, thoughts around recognition of cognitive impairment and that importance in surgical care. Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks, Dr. Flood. So um, while in, in kind of an outpatient setting, these distinctions are, are very, very important, in the perioperative setting, they're a little bit less important in as much as we don't really have a fine enough tool to differentiate between, for example, dementia and mild cognitive impairment. Um, where it becomes really relevant is um, the perhaps talking about um, talking about goals of care for truly advanced dementia, but you don't need a you don't need an extremely fine and careful tool in order to dif differentiate somebody who needs a, a careful consideration of goals of care. Our strategies perioperatively perioperatively don't really depend on the distinction between MCI and dementia per se. Yeah, and I so then you know I'm Dr. Varian, and I'll I'll just add that as a surgeon I. Um, you know, a lot of the decision-making in advance of going to the operating room is where I think cognition plays a, a huge role. Um, most of the time when I'm treating patients who have more advanced dementia, which they carry as a diagnosis, um, then that conversation, um, and as Dr. Flood and Dr. Whitlock already mentioned, you know, the goals of care and particularly the goals of having a surgery um, those become, you know, even more important to articulate and to understand what the trade-offs are and what their risks are in order to accomplish those goals. Um, I find that in more advanced dementia, of course, some of that decision-making does shift towards caregivers and family members. Um, and, um, and I think, you know, it's, it's pretty important for us to at least think about uh, those decision-making conversations before um, we're on the date of surgery and um, about to have the operation. Excellent, thank you. So it sounds like what really what I'm hearing is, you know, these are clinically distinct entities, but for the purposes of surgery, they um, they have similar far-reaching effect in terms of the, the preoperative planning and the postoperative course of the patient. I'm wondering, this seems to be obviously a very important issue for these patients um, that come into a surgical clinic, specifically with regard to cognitive impairment. How big is this issue? How, how commonly are, would, does a patient have cognitive impairment uh, or even dementia and present to a surgical clinic for surgical care that has been previously undetected? Dr. Uh, Whitlock, maybe if you could start us off. So these, these numbers, when I read about them were a total shock to me. You know, you might estimate, oh, like maybe 5% of your patients kind of visibly have some cognitive impairment in pre-op. Actually, if you go through and do cognitive testing, 37% of elective older surgical patients meet criteria for, for some degree of cognitive impairment. And it's even higher, 50% of emergent surgical patients um, that, are, that are older adults. And, um, you know, we care about this because it really impacts even, even simple stuff like the ability of a patient to follow preoperative medication instructions. Hold this one, stop this one three days before surgery. Um, they can get the, the NPO status wrong and, and be eating and drinking after midnight. Um, it, like cognitively, these diagnoses are really relevant in, in perioperative care um, in some ways and in, in their ability to follow instructions. Um, and it's so, so undiagnosed um, with, again, a third to a half of patients coming, older patients coming to surgery with a pre-existing limitation of cognition. Um, so it would be really helpful in some ways to implement um, broad-based cognitive screening, hopefully a little bit before people are actually coming to the OR so that we can know these things ahead of time. Um, and Dr. Varian, yeah. um, do you want to talk about like how you think about screening in your surgical patients? Yeah, so um, I guess I would add that, um, you know, and as Dr. Flood mentioned, there's a number of things that can affect an older adult's cognition, um, and many of them are associated with the healthcare they're receiving. And so particularly for me, if I have cancer patients who are receiving chemotherapy, um, uh, and then also, you know, all of the polypharmacy that we see in the older populations, um, many of those um, uh, elements of care will affect their cognition. The challenge here is that we don't routinely screen uh, patients for their cognition. And I would say that um, 
Really, the lack of a solid baseline is what affects our ability to track cognitive changes and trajectories over time. So uh, many of us who study uh, this and, um, and care about this in our clinical work, uh, you know, many of us would love to have more uh, comprehensive and routine screening efforts. Um, but I do find that the surgical episode can be a valuable um, turning point to at least do some initial screening and help identify some cognitive issues. Um, but without a good baseline, it's really difficult for us to, to tell um, how someone's cognition changes in the post-operative setting. So that's my plug for saying that we should uh, start doing more routine cognitive screening, at least for um, older, the oldest old and for people for whom you have some degree of clinical concern. And uh, the reason to do it is it helps us counsel our patients. It helps us track how they change. And it also helps us discuss um, some very specific post-operative risks, things like um, post-operative delirium, which occur which, with a much higher frequency, somewhere around double the rate among patients who have some degree of preoperative impairment. Um, so without knowing that, you can't appropriately counsel the patients or their families. Yeah, and one of the best, biggest predictors of subsequent cognitive decline after surgery is going to be rapid preoperative decline. Um, so like you said, without a, without a baseline, without a good grasp of how people might be declining preoperatively, the, um, the actual rate of cognitive decline postoperatively could potentially impact a, a patient's surgical recovery um, to the extent that the surgical team might care about that. You know, what are, what are the next couple of years going to look like in somebody with already pre-established rapid cognitive decline, um, even beyond the immediate perioperative setting and concerns about delirium? So, you know, what I'm hearing is that the impact on this of cognitive impairment and dementia on our surgical population is, is really significant. And we, it seems to me that we can't afford to not be screening these patients. And so I'd like to hear kind of generally how we can incorporate screening into a surgical practice and how you've seen it all built into the practices that you, you know, where you, um, where you work. Dr. Barron, if you'd like to start us off. Sure. So, um, I work pretty closely with our geriatricians, um, and I can refer my patients uh, for geriatric screening um, through a, their clinic. Um, but I think it's really important here to emphasize that um, the best way to incorporate geriatric screening and particularly cognitive screening is um, however it will work well in your own system. And so, um, you know, the burden on the surgeon um, to start incorporating and doing additional testing in the preoperative setting is probably too high, particularly if you're in a private practice. Um, but, uh, and maybe Dr. Flood can com comment on this, um, but, you know, geriatrics is, is inherently interdisciplinary. And um, there are a lot of really good resources to help train um, nurses or even MAs to help administer kind of basic screeners um, for patients uh, for whom you have some clinical concern. Um, and I think that that's a really good um, mechanism and an option for people who don't have access to geriatricians. Um, and I think, you know, some of the work uh, that um, has been done in terms of trying to integrate this into your system, which, you know, I have to credit the college for for trying to find ways to bake things into the system um, and to find incentives for, um, for really uh, streamlining processes uh, to allow surgeons to deliver the care that they know is the best, um, but to rely on other um, resources and to try and incorporate all of those pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah, I really echo everything Dr. Berrien just said. I mean, the great part about delivering high-quality geriatric care is it is a team sport, and that comes into play not only in performing screens, but also in, in implementing care pathways or, or risk mitigation uh, that comes from the results of those screens. So I have been 
in health systems and a member of teams where cognitive screens were done by nurses or medical assistants or nurse practitioners or social workers or care managers or pharmacists. I've seen all of these team members in different models and different systems perform these screens. And then similarly, what do we do with the screening information? How do we enact delirium prevention measures post-operatively? That too is really a team sport. So it really allows for geri evidence-based geriatric care to be very doable. And by really equipping and empowering all team members, and as Dr. Berrien mentioned, fitting it into their workflows, where they're each empowered to really practice at the top of their license, of their scope of practice, and really engage um, with the patient to, to deliver this geriatric care. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm, I'm reminded by, by something both of you have kind of alluded to, and that's like we, we just spent several minutes talking about how important it is to identify this well in advance of surgery. Well, the truth is at my institution, we don't have um, a, a pathway for doing that with very much time. What we do is is a limited um, orientation test and, and spelling world backwards in the preoperative area, and that's led by the pre-op nurses. So like literally right before the patient rolls back into the operating room. That was the time that was feasible for us to get screening going. Um, and it's not too late because like Dr. Flood was saying, we can do things intraoperatively and perioperatively to try and reduce the risk of delirium to talk to patients. I know we'll come back to that um, a little bit later. So don't let perfect be the enemy of good here. Um, we What we can do in my institution is simply preoperative screening. And we hope to broaden that out but even, um, even the little bit of information you can get from a very rapid preoperative screen um, can be clinically relevant to, to help impair, improve care for these patients. Yeah, I feel like um, I've sort of seen, you know, there's, there's always a plethora of screening for, for all kinds of preoperative vulnerabilities. And there's many different tools that, that folks can use, and it can be a little bit overwhelming to choose one, but it sounds like the message here is, is, you know, anything is better than nothing. Some things are better than others, but I think that's a pretty powerful message. Uh, I'd like to use uh, a clinical vignette to get into talking about um, some of the details of, of cognitive impairment screening and some of the warning signs that might prompt um, surgeons and other providers uh, to, to screen patients um, with formal tools or, <clears throat> or other methods. And so a 78-year-old male presents to the surgery clinic for evaluation of an increasingly symptomatic inguinal hernia accompanied by his adult son. He is operatively appropriate with well-controlled comorbidities, although nursing intake notes do indicate that the patient was unable to remember any of his home medications. He's otherwise recently stopped driving and lives alone in a rural single-level home about 10 miles away from his son who does visit three to four times per month to deliver groceries. And when necessary, his son also does help him pay bills. Uh, the patient is appropriate, is an appropriate candidate for surgery and expresses the desire to pursue surgical treatment. And so, um, Dr. Flood, having heard this vignette, are there any kinds of warning signs or, or flags that should be raised for, for a non-specialist or non-geriatrician to think about um, sort of reactionarily screen, uh, co doing cognitive screening or workup for this patient? Yeah, uh, thanks so much. This is such a great question. So we talked earlier about how when cognitive impairment now causes a decline in a patient's baseline functioning, then that's when they've transitioned into early dementia. That first decline we see in function will often, often appear in what we call the instrumental activities of daily living or the IADLs. And these are the more complicated tasks, many of which are listed in the vignette, that we all need to be able to do to continue to remain independent and functioning in our home or society. Things like navigating transportation, managing our medicines, managing our finances, paying bills, shopping, um, performing household duties such as cooking or cleaning or laundry. And of all of these IEDL impairments that may be most easily recognized in a clinical setting tend to be either patients who now are making mistakes with their medicines or can no longer manage their medicines appropriately or even list their medicines, and those who maybe begin missing appointments. So maybe they can't navigate the transportation to get to the appointment or um, they forget about the appointment. The other sign to be on the lookout for is when you hear an older adult has now become quote unquote non-compliant. And that's a huge red flag that this person may actually have dementia. 
these patients are doing the best they can. Their brains are not able to navigate complicated tasks, which includes managing their healthcare. So we really um, need to move away from labeling these patients who are having difficulty as non-compliant and move more towards proactively investigating what barriers they're facing that's impacting their healthcare, which could include cognitive impairment. I'd like to follow up with another question. I think this gets back to the, these staggering numbers of patients that would that might present for to a surgical clinic with un, um, excuse me undetected uh, cognitive impairment or dementia. Are these are these are these changes um, in cognition typically noticed either by the patients themselves or their family members or loved ones? Yeah, I'll start that off and then hand it off if others have other thoughts. So I I, I see all scenarios. I see some patients and. Families are very aware and they're volunteer that they notice that these changes are happening. Uh, some are aware, but they're attributing the changes to just normal aging. And then some are just not aware at all. Um, a not uncommon scenario to be on the lookout for is maybe when one patient has early dementia and a spouse has um, begun to perform more duties to kind of make up that slack. And then something happens to that spouse, maybe they're hospitalized or they pass away. And now other family members are spending more time with the patient with dementia and become aware. It's not that dementia has had a sudden onset. It's that now more people are aware of the difficulties that um, the patient is having. So, so I think the take-home point there is for all of us to be aware that patients may be having these impairments, and they may even be significant impairments, but folks may not readily volunteer that information for a variety of reasons. Um, when we do pick up on some of these red flags, it, it signals us that more investigation is needed, and one uh, investigative tool might be to then perform a cognitive screen. That's excellent. I, I wonder, <clears throat> since family members may not uh, readily notice these changes and patients may be hesitant to, to share whether they're noticing cognitive changes for, for fear of stigma or, or whatnot. Um, what's the best way when we approach cognitive screening for these patients? How do we communicate to patients and their family members and loved ones what cognitive screening means? Why are we doing it when they're coming to a surgical visit? Um, and, and what if they screen positive, what does that mean? What, what is it all, um, how does it all fit into that, that uh, that surgical care episode and why is it relevant? Um, Dr. Baring, if you'd like to start us off. Sure. Um, so I routinely recommend um, these kinds of screens to my patients. And um, for cognitive screening, I generally, I couch it in terms of post-operative delirium. So the risk of having um, changes in their thinking uh, and confusion in the post-operative setting increases if they have mild, subtle changes um, that are going undetected, which is why I recommend screening in the, in the preoperative setting. Um, I think it's really important to be able to tell patients and their families what postoperative delirium looks like, um, because it can be quite distressing. Um, and I think doing cognitive screens helps us better assess the patient's risk and give the patient and their family a better um, understanding for what that risk really is and what it looks like and how we manage it in the post-operative setting. So I think it's just really important in terms of patient education and family education uh, for the surgical period. Yeah, I mean, what we, what we focus on, because we're doing these cognitive screens immediately pre-op, um, is really talking about the increased risk for post-operative delirium. Um, and while there's some things that we as clinicians can do to try and prevent it, I think a lot of the utility of talking about postoperative delirium linked to a cognitive screen is that um, if you've got uh, the patient and ideally some family members there, you can let them know what delirium looks like. The patient's family is a fantastic partner um, in trying to handle postoperative delirium if it occurs, to, to frankly, to treat it, to reorient the patient, to be, you know, a familiar voice and a familiar presence, um, and even to potentially diagnose it. Delirium is notoriously a fluctuating syndrome. So if the family member is at bedside and they've got the words to describe the symptoms of postoperative delirium, because they've been counseled about the increased risk related to a, um, a cognitive screen that indicates potentially some, some cognitive challenges, 
um, the, the family member could even be empowered to bring that diagnosis to the nursing team or, or the physician team, whoever it is that's caring for the patient, to make sure that postoperative delirium is being appropriately recognized and treated um, as best we can. Um, and, and what Dr. Berrien alluded to also is the, the really profound distress that patients and families who are unprepared for delirium can experience. So there's some really interesting qualitative work that's been done on this. If patients remember their episode of delirium, they often have extremely distressing, vivid, PTSD-causing memories of what that delirium, you know, of, of what they were experiencing during the delirium. When we look at a patient who is delirious, they are actually internally often, it seems, in distress. Um, they're terrified, maybe. They're, they're, they may be imagining things that aren't there, certainly situations that are not, in fact, you know, not a person in the ICU, but, but um, you know, I was in a hole and people were staring at me and laughing. Um, there was one person, a family member, who described her experience of her mom's postoperative delirium as um, my mother wasn't even there. It's a shell. So family members observing postoperative delirium or the delirious patient themselves, um, without having words to describe this, may put a very different experience on it. You know, like what is it that happened during the surgery that brain damaged my mom? Um, if we don't talk about delirium and what it looks like preoperatively, we miss an opportunity to partner with the family and to prevent some of the distress that patients and families experience when they have postoperative delirium they weren't ready for. I would absolutely agree with, with that. Um, uh, the experience of having postoperative delirium can be very distressing to the patient and to the families. And I agree that, you know, this is a huge push in terms of education, right? So there's just across the board, whether it's postoperative or just hospitalization de delirium, there are, um, I think that our awareness of this as a, a major issue is increasing. And I think the importance of educating our patients and our family and their family members is, is also, um, is also sort of rising in our level of recognition for this. Um, you know, even if you're in an institution where you can't do formal screens or have your nurses do a pre-op screen in, in the, like literally the moment before they go into the operating room, um, one of the things that Dr. Whitlock mentioned is, you know, some people will re remember being delirious and having had a prior episode of delirium is one of the most important predictors of having more episodes of delirium. Um, so in addition to all the things we have been commenting on for formal cognitive screens, um, even just asking your patient if they've ever been delirious is a, is a really important question. And, um, and I agree, it gives them and it gives their family the language and um, it names the entity so that they can, so that they can engage and, um, and help uh, their family member get through it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with all these brilliant points. That's why it is so important for us and our teams to be really thoughtful and intentional as much as possible to pro proactively screen, mitigate risk, reduce delirium as much as possible. Um, the only other point I would add about the screening test is that they are screening tests. They are not diagnostic tests. So we cannot make a diagnosis of dementia from any of these high-level screening tests. Uh, that is a more complicated diagnosis that requires uh, a thoughtful cognition history and further evaluation. So we don't want to communicate to these patients that based on this one screening test, you absolutely have dementia. And we certainly don't also want to label them in the chart as having dementia. So we just want to make sure we're communicating correctly that we have an abnormal cognitive screen, uh, we want to put measures in place to address, to risk stratify those patients and address risk factors, uh, and then uh, perhaps help arrange or communicate the need for follow-up for ongoing evaluation when the patient is at their baseline, not acutely ill, not in the hospital, but back with their PCP at their baseline, for perhaps repeat screening or and or additional memory loss history and things like that. Yeah, I would. Um, I I alluded to this earlier, but I would um, just reiterate that 
you know, the episode of having a major surgery um, can be a, an important point along someone's health trajectory. And doing screens or introducing, you know, the idea that someone might want to have further follow-up down the line um, can be really important, and the surgical episode can really be a valuable opportunity. Um, I find, you know, even if people have, you know, mild changes or subtle changes, um, simply noticing that and having one data point for future comparison can be really important. And if you are in a hospital or in a system where you have, um, you know, lines, surface lines that are devoted to memory care or to, um, to dementia, um, that can be an opportunity to at least kind of make a note and uh, down the line, refer a patient for further testing and um, for follow-up and more education. Those are excellent points. I think that I, I particularly like the the element of leverage, leveraging the surgical care episode to try to try to address other patient uh, needs. I think a lot of these points have brought up themes of meeting patients and families where they are, empowering them, and being sensitive to their unique needs. And so, I'd like to follow up with another question, sort of along those lines. Um, a lot of the studies, and, and we've talked about the staggering numbers of, of patients that will come into a surgical clinic that, that might have undetected impairments. Um, most, the, most of the patients in the studies that we reference are white non-minorities. And so what, um, what do we know and not know about how best to be culturally sensitive as we approach screening practices and communication with patients and families? Um, Dr. Flood, if you'd like to, to give it a go. Yeah, thanks again for this all important question. So we know here in the US, dementia is much more prevalent in people of color compared to whites. And yet people of color are less likely to be formally diagnosed with their dementia, or if they are diagnosed, diagnosed at later stages in their disease trajectory. So I also just wanna echo the great point Dr. Barian's made that sometimes a hospitalization or a surgical encounter is the only way that these patients and families who have been living with dementia may finally be set on a pathway to receiving the outpatient evaluation and help and support that they need if we're proactively screening their cognition preoperatively. And I see that play out every day in my clinical practice as an inpatient geriatrician. So that is absolutely the case. And then I think in general, we also all just want to be aware whenever we're caring for a patient from a culture different than our own, we need to seek to learn more about how that patient from that culture would maybe interpret cognitive screening or um, do they have a word for dementia in their language or do they come from a, for example, a culture where passing down family histories verbally from memory is a core tenet. We're just not aware of the impact of even performing screening tests or having conversations about cognitive parent may have in patients from cultures that are different from our own. So I think we all just need to pause and take a moment to learn before we leap right in and communicate in the exact same way for every single patient. Um, and then lastly, um, I know Dr. Whitlock and has some great teaching points around perhaps the interpretation and cautionary interpretation of cognitive screens in diverse cultures. So we know that um, cognitive test performance is highly influenced by your educational attainment. For example, a lot of cognitive tests rely on somebody to be literate um, in English, potentially. Um, those expectations are not necessarily fair to hold to our entire patient population. Um, so we know that these screening tools um, have these limitations and may not be performing the same way in people of different, again, ethnic language, uh, educational backgrounds. Um, one thing that we, one of the reasons that we do use um, the spelling world backwards uh, cognitive screener or attentional screener in our perioperative setting is that it can be translated into some other language. So for a Spanish speaking patient, we ask them to spell mundo, which is actually a direct translation of world, um, also has five letters and can be spelled backwards. So there are some adaptations you can use depending on how um, your strategies uh, have to be adapted to your own 
feasible practices locally, but just recognize that whatever interventions you might want to tie to the performance of a cognitive screener, they need to be sensitive to the fact that different populations will have different performance on these tools, um, potentially for reasons completely unrelated to cognition. If you're going to tie um, a high touch intervention to your cognitive screener, you should be aware that you may be catching people that that will not benefit from that screener and that it would impose an additional burden on somebody who already may be feeling very burdened by, by the healthcare contact. Um, in some ways, that's one of the reasons that we also locally focus very much on post-operative delirium because what we do for post-operative delirium is often just kind of good care. I'm sure we'll, we'll chat about that later. Um, but we're not tying, you know, medications to it or something, something that has true risk of harm. Um, so cognitive screeners, uh, the per differential performance in different groups really should be taken into account when you're making choices about how to do this at an institution or even at an individual level. Those are excellent points. I think that ties in really nicely to um, what, what was mentioned kind of at the earlier part of the discussion about you know, avoiding a one size fits all and, and feasibility is really important. And so I think different practices are gonna be, it will would find different um, screening instruments more uh, beneficial for their patient populations. So we've talked a lot about the impact and implications of cognitive impairment screening uh, in surgical patients. I, I'd like to, to close the loop on our patient vignette that we reviewed earlier so we can talk a little bit more about how and how um, and what to do after, after a, a positive uh, cognitive impairment screening. So the patient uh, undergoes a preoperative geriatric cognitive screening. <clears throat> he reports bathing, dressing, feeding himself without difficulty at home. He requires no ambulatory assistance. He completes a timed up and go test in nine seconds. And for his cognitive screen, he completes a mini uh, mental state exam uh, with a final score of 22, which is consistent with, with mild or, or early impairment, cognitive impairment. And uh, so Dr. Ritlock, you mentioned earlier, and, and I didn't specify for this gentleman in our vignette, but we talked a little bit about when a patient should be screened for cognitive uh, impairments in relationship or surgery. Um, is there, uh, is there a data that supports a timeline and whether or not there is um, a supported timeline, what can we do uh, for patients uh, before surgery if they screen positive on these, on these instruments? Um, well, I think one of the one of the big things that everyone's super excited about is the potential for cognitive prehabilitation. Like, oh, if you screen two months ahead, like, can we do some cognitive exercises on an app? And are we going to, you know, make you better before surgery? There's a lot of enthusiasm around there. Obviously, a really active area of study. Um, unfortunately, what we know about cognitive prehabilitation so far is that um, it it doesn't across the board. It's not effective um, at at preventing at cognitive, you know, de delirium. It's not effective at sort of improving long-term cognitive outcomes. Um, we maybe see some improvement in cognition in people who are able to adhere to the tests, which is maybe not the most vulnerable population. You know, it's like if your cognition is good enough for you to really prioritize doing an app-based cognitive prehabilitation um, regime, you're probably not the person that we're most worried about. Um, but there's a lot more beyond the kind of, you know, like a cognitive prehabilitation and, and optimization. Um, the the other stuff is maybe less, uh, like less dramatically cool. Um, but it's it's really practical. And I, I'm hoping actually that Dr. Dr. Flood could talk about that from a more of like a primary care perspective. What what they can do. Yeah, so again, another advantage to doing this preoperative screening is it does give us the opportunity to proactively engage our other team members. So for example, can pharmacists help us evaluate for the opportunity to develop a de-prescribing, an appropriate de-prescribing plan? Are there some medications that don't need to be tapered that really aren't benefiting the patient. I see this play out all the time. The patient may not even know why they're taking the medication. They've been taking it for years. Uh, and that's some low hanging fruit. Are there other medications that again, with good communication with the original prescriber, their PCP, we can begin a tapering process um, preoperatively. So really engaging our pharmacy colleagues to help us in where deep prescribing is a possibility because so much of delirium is medication related. Um, 
We also have the opportunity to see if we need to follow up our cognitive screen with a depression screen, a brief depression screen, or be aware of depressive symptoms because as we mentioned earlier, depression can mimic mild cognitive impairment or early dementia. And that other, that's another opportunity for us to begin intervention in the preoperative state that can only help us in the postoperative state. It also, again, being aware preoperatively that there could be some cognitive impairment can help alert the hospital, all team members from the hospital team uh, and the preoperative team. For example, when we're giving preoperative instructions, does a family member need to be present for those instructions as well? If we want our patient to arrive for surgery, having completed the preoperative instructions correctly. So those are a few things that that are perhaps some low-hanging fruit in the preoperative space that knowing that there's cognitive impairment there, we can we can intervene on. So it sounds like there's no shortage of, of opportunities for us to um, target these patients for optimization prior to surgery. For these patients who screen positive um, for cognitive impairment prior to surgery, uh, what, what can we do differently or what is done differently um, both um, I guess we'll start with, you know, intraoperatively. So during surgery, Dr. Whitlock, if you could, you could start us off talking about what kind of things are done differently for patients at increased cognitive risk. Yeah. So um, one of, one of the biggest topics right now um, has been whether there's a difference in postoperative delirium for patients who undergo neuraxial at like epidural or spinal anesthesia compared with general anesthesia, which is, you know, you shut off the brain with hypnotics. Um, shockingly, um, but with quite robust data, uh, there's really no difference between neuraxial and general anesthesia. So accepting that the appropriate kind of overarching anesthetic plan should be dictated by the surgical needs and not by some, you know, really strong urge to avoid general anesthesia without evidence. Um, there are a bunch of things that we can otherwise try and optimize intraoperatively. And that includes stuff like avoiding potentially inappropriate medications off of the, the beers list. So midazolam is, is commonly, uh, it's a short-acting benzodiazepine commonly administered before surgery. I virtually never give it to adults over 65, although there are some selected situations when it might be the lesser of, of some other evils. Um, a lot of anti-emetics are on the beers list. So we try to be very creative about prophylaxis for postoperative nausea and vomiting. Um, it may involve relying more on a propofol-based uh, hypnotic strategy rather than volatile anesthetics or minimizing opioids using multimodal analgesia, which we again, really emphasize for older patients. Um, again, a lot of enthusiasm around the use of intraoperative and electroencephalography, EEG, to monitor the depth of hypnosis by looking at the brain's re reaction, basically, to the hypnotics. Um, the evidence on that is pretty mixed. Uh, it's really difficult to recommend that across the board, but as a, as a practicing anesthesiologist, I also do really like looking at the, you know, the effect site action of my hypnotics. Um, and, and I think we're learning more and more about how to use EEG to optimize depth of hypnosis in older patients. Um, and then finally, you know, one of the things, like, like I said, what we, we tie this delirium risk discussion pretty heavily to our immediate preoperative um, cognitive risk screen. And that's so that we can implement some limited delirium precautions in, in PACU in the postoperative care area. And the nurses in PACU have found this very empowering. When somebody comes with a risk of delirium, there are a number of non-pharmacologic interventions that we can get started even in PACU, including stuff like trying to get patients to a bed that's near a window so that they can be better oriented to time, um, potentially bringing family up into the recovery area a little bit earlier than you would for somebody who's cognitively healthier, um, frequent reorientation, that kind of thing. Um, so we do have a lot of interventions and strategies that we can use perioperatively on, again, an individually tailored basis to try and um, optimize perioperative care specifically for patients at elevated cognitive risk. That's excellent. I think um, we've, we've, we're very fortunate, given all of your backgrounds, to cover you know sort of the pre-op setting, the intra-op setting, and then and uh, sort of the post-op setting as well. I wonder, Dr. Barron, do you have anything to add about things that we can do or do do for patients that that screen positive for for cognitive impairment or at elevated risk um, after surgery? Once a patient has has completed surgery, they're out of PACU and they're up on up on the floor. Yes. So. 
Um, some of the uh, measures that Dr. Whitlock mentioned um, are very common uh, non-pharmacologic preventative measures for uh, delirium prevention in the post-operative setting. So um, uh, I, I don't know, you may be luckier than I, but our PACU doesn't have any windows. Um, so, uh, so when the patient is up on the floor, um, some of those strategies uh, are going to be really important. Um, their frequent reorientation, having family members at the bedside, even having reminders, um, photos and um, you know personal objects, um, making sure that uh, the window is is open with daylight during waking hours, um, minimizing you know light, TV, noise, etc. Um, during sleeping hours, uh, many of these are actually um, good nursing practice, um, and so our nurses are really wonderful partners to help uh, with some of these delirium prevention bundles. Um, in addition, obviously, multimodal analgesia plays a really important role throughout the postoperative period, um, kind of extending beyond the intraoperative setting. And so many surgeons have um, enhanced recovery pathways where they have many different components that go into pain control. Um, particularly for older adults, it's important to edit those pathways and make sure that they aren't receiving high-risk medications um, Dr. Whitlock brought up the beers criteria, which are commonly used. Um, and so uh, most of the time we're layering um, different pain control medications together um, in order to get a strategy to help um, to help our patients postoperatively. Um, uh, you know, I think um, Dr. Flood might want to make a comment about some of the specific medications um, that we that we do try to avoid in our older adults. Yeah, thanks so much. So in an effort to avoid opioids, we don't want to swing too far in the other direction and, and rely on muscle relaxic, relaxants, for example. Those um, are really notorious for causing delirium and other complications and um, are not great for analgesia. We also want to avoid um, gabapentin where able or, or when needed to really avoid too high doses of gabapentin, which I am unfortunately seeing more and more of and, and part of our new national efforts to appropriately um, avoid um, opioids or overuse of opioids. Um, and then also in the non-pharmacologic um, bucket, again, there are, are opportunities for all of our team members to help out. So what can we do to maintain day-night and minimize nighttime interruptions? Um, early mobility is a great way to um, prevent complications, including delirium and surgical services do early mobility very well, but that's another um, opportunity post-operatively, especially for cognitively impaired patients. That's excellent. I think I think we it's uh, very insightful to see across the multiple phases of care. There's so many things that we can do for these patients after they screen positive to really mitigate their risks. Um, I'd like to transition to sort of a, a bigger picture question. Um, I think we've talked a lot about uh, some of your practice patterns and how how we do screen and how we can screen. Just um, sort of big picture, uh, where as a um, Health institution in the United States, where do we go from here with regards to cognitive screening for surgical patients and how might we improve practice patterns? I don't know if, uh, if Dr. Berrien, if you have initial thoughts or if anyone else would like to start us off. You know, in, in my opinion, I alluded to this previously, but in my opinion, we need to find ways to support the system so that individual providers don't have to um, carry the burden of uh, thinking of um, some of these additional factors that might influence our patient outcomes. So I think it's really important to have uh, bigger kind of national efforts and um, collaboratives and uh, quality initiatives that support um, overall geriatric care in addition to um, cognitive care efforts. Um, so, you know, my interest and emphasis is really on um, finding ways to integrate that care into the system so that individual providers don't have to be thinking like, oh, I should, I should do an additional cognitive screen on this patient because they're among the oldest old group and, um, and really just finding ways to bake it into the system. 
And I'll just echo that. So if you want to change an outcome, the solution is not to ask the humans to do more or work harder or work faster, especially coming out of COVID. The secret sauce is evaluating structures and processes because those are what drive outcomes. Every system is delivering the outcome it is designed to deliver. And what's super fun about doing this geriatric work is, again, if we develop structures and processes that support all of our team members, to play a part, then an equipped and empowered team member finds more satisfaction in their job. They really are a part of the solution. They're a part of making a meaningful difference. And so start, start somewhere. I think Dr. Berrien or someone made this point about it's okay to start, start somewhere. And starting small, even pilot testing a process to do a cognitive screen on just one patient is a PDSA cycle in that one patient. It's a test of change that you that you will learn from. And that's a success. Um, the other point is that you're not alone in this journey. So the American College of Surgeons Geriatric Surgery Verification Program has lots of resources. Uh, they will help you. They'll help connect you to others who are working on this. We can all work on this together. Um, so uh, there's definitely a way to, again, design it in the system where it's doable and where everyone uh, has great meaning in their work. Yeah, and, I, and I'd like to approach it a little bit from a research perspective. I mean, this is the area that I research in. And one of the things that's hardest about this field is that there does not exist a lot of broad-based repeated cognitive screens being performed in older adults. There does not exist a lot of data about postoperative delirium. And so as more and more hospitals incorporate cognitive screening and delirium risk stratification and, and, and uh, screening on the hospital floors, the data are just accumulating from routine clinical care that we can analyze to try and find the best practices for caring for vulnerable patients. Um, we have learned so much from um, routine collected clinical data and um, and yet the delirium and cognition field perioperatively has been somewhat limited by the fact that there just wasn't a lot of screening and, and, and risk uh, stratification being done. So um, as this becomes more widespread, and it totally should, this is, you know, this is clearly something that we can do to help our older patients recover better from surgery and make sure that they have a safe and, and successful surgical experience as much as possible. Um, we can continue to learn and to do even better um, in the future as uh, as the data evolve and, and are kind of actively being worked on. I think that rounds us out um, really nicely. I want to be mindful of uh, everyone's time here. And so I just want to say thank you again to Dr. Flood, Dr. Berrien, and Dr. Whitlock for joining me today to talk about this. I think it's been a really uh, insightful conversation, and I hope that our listeners will agree with us. And so I will just say thank you again and take care. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.